How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 121 of X Labs, where we have finally hit the midway point of X of Swords here. Today we hit stasis, which is defined as a period or state of inactivity. Which, uh, yeah, that kind of uh, sums up X of Ten so far, doesn't it? <laughs> now, let's not waste any time. Let's get into it, because we got a, a pretty long issue to discuss, and... Uh, I've got a lot of very repetitive complaints and observations to fit in, so let's do it here. This is X of Swords Stasis number one. At a December 2020 cover date, the story is X of Swords chapter 11. Written by Jonathan Hickman and Teeny Howard, with art by Pepe Larraz and Mahmoud Azrar. Colors Marty Gracia, letters VCs Clayton Cowles, designs Tom Muller. Edits Bisa White Sabolski, cover price $5, and this one went on sale October 28th of 2020, so this might be our final 2020 cover-dated book here. I'm not sure when next episode's issue came out, but if it came out in November, we're going to be in cover-date year 2021. So how about that? So let's crack this thing open here, and we start with our uh, you know, our chapter break quote page from Saturnine, and uh, here we find out she's, uh, she's like a puppet master, you see? Hmm. Double page spread of creds followed by our roll call. You got Captain Avalon, Magic, Gorgon, Apocalypse, Wolverine, Betsy Britton, Cypher, Storm, Kid Cable, and Saturnine. And uh, did I miss the issue where Gorgon procured the Grass Cutter and God Killer Swords? I mean, that's two of our ten prophecy blades. Yeah, that's 20% of them. Shouldn't that have been something we ought to have seen? Uh, did he always have those swords? I. I don't know. Also, I mean, doesn't this put the good guys at a bit of a disadvantage? If one of their champions is carrying two of the ten swords, then, I mean, when we stack, you know, everybody up against one another here, we're going to be a combatant short, aren't we? I, I don't know. Wasn't Magneto on the ten of swords tarot card back in creation? Does any of this matter? I don't know. We open comics content with Saturnine's Emissary delivering an invitation to Mad Jim Jaspers at the Crooked Market, then to the Otherworld Kingdom of Sevelith, then in Fury, which uh, I'm happy to see is comprised of those horrible and terrifying Furies from the Moore and Davis days, then to the upside-down floating Kingdom of Roma, where we get to see Roma herself, then the Holy Republic of Fae, where we see Merlin, and this all leads to a meeting of the Otherworld Parliament, which is being chaired by, who else? Saturnine. Now, the issue on the table at this, you know, parliamentary meeting is whether or not there should be, 
I don't know, uh, like open borders between the, the disparate kingdoms of Otherworld. Um, we hear that Roma and Merlin's votes canceled each other out when I could have sworn they were usually depicted as being more on the same page, you know, most of the time. I don't know, maybe there's a new development. Now, amid a whole lot of, uh, to be completely honest, pretty boring to me discussion, uh, when the votes are finally tallied, the nays have it, so no open borders. The session quickly becomes out of order, and Saturnine is left banging the hell out of her crystal gavel, which looks like something someone could buy at a Spencer's Gifts at the mall. We then see that two of Apocalypse's original horsemen, Pestilence and Famine, are here. They are taking the seat of Dryador. Now, we saw them take out the cursed king of Dryador like six years ago when we read X of Swords Creation. We learn that the horsemen have annexed Dryador on behalf of Arako, which itself belongs to Amenth. I mean, can, can we just do like Earth 2, Earth 3? This, these weird words are just a little much, especially when they all kind of look and sound alike. Eh. Anyway, Saturnine dials the conversation back to the Contest of Champions, which she refers to as being the champions of Arako versus the champions of Avalon. What now? I, I, I don't think this is how it was originally presented and sold. Um, I guess we're meant to believe that our heroes are fighting on behalf of that weirdo Jamie Braddock's kingdom? Okay, then. I mean, Saturnine's got no reason to lie to us. Uh, it's worth noting that Jamie is present, and he's still wearing Mr. Sinister's cape, and it's, uh, that's still pretty funny. Jamie informs Saturnine that his champions are on their way. And with that, we shift scenes over to the X of Swords action figure display and playset. Apocalypse has them take their places on the sigil, or, I guess, sigils in uh, Gorgon's uh, case, because he's got the two swords. They all jam their swords into the ground, and in a very neat page of art, our champions see perhaps their opponents in their reflection? I I mean, they don't see them, but we do. It's a pretty nice visual here. And we're going to try to parse them out here. Uh, We got Wolverine, who looks to be paired with the Firestorm-looking horseman. Cypher is paired with the White Sword. Magic is paired with maybe Apocalypse's sister-in-law, Iska. Betsy Britton is paired with Solemn, who I would have sworn would be facing Wolverine since they were both in hell together. Uh, Brian, he has that Anubis-looking horseman. I'm pretty sure that one's Death. Apocalypse is reflected by the giant kaiju monster that we'll be meeting in just a little bit. Gorgon, since he's holding two swords, is reflected by Annihilation and Redroot, who we'll meet in a few pages. Kid Cable is paired with the Creepy Summoner, and Storm is paired with someone we're about to meet, maybe for the first time. Maybe not for the first time. I don't know. But uh, I don't know if these will be the uh, matches. I have seen some of the upcoming covers, which lead me to believe that these are probably not the fights we're going to be seeing, but hey... It's, uh, it's as good a guess as any. From here, we jump to a blank page, which introduces us to the story of the sword bearers of Arako. So uh, it's time to uh, do more uh, listing and whatnot. We got an info page all about the prophecies of the Arakans, or Arakis, hinting at people and swords that we don't know nor care about. Uh, I feel like we're reading like a Dungeons & Dragons rulebook here, um, which I'd also not much care about. Jump back into comics here, and we are at the last watchtower of Dryador. Here, the horseman Pestilence shares the prophecy, kind of like Polaris did on Krakoa back in, uh, 
I believe it was X-Factor number four. Now, together with the creepy summoner and the firestorm-looking horseman, Pestilence crafts the Arako version of the action figure display and playset. Now, it's time to start recruiting a bunch of uh, ciphers who will likely only be important for this very story. First, we head over to the woods where the summoner attempts to recruit Redroot. Now, Redroot is sat before a very Krakoa in the Quiet Council looking tree, and it looks as though she acts as a translator, kind of like Doug does for the good guys. Doesn't take much convincing, and with Arako's blessing, the big tree that is, Redroot is in. Next, Firestorm and Pestilence recruit the giant lizard man Pog Er Pog, who, if you recall, wields the blade known as Pog Er Pog. Now, his sword has like a crick in it, kind of like Apocalypse's scarab blade. Um, he doesn't take much convincing either. He's in. The summoner then recruits Bay the Blood Moon, who is in the middle of slaying a Lovecraftian horror. Perhaps the same one that the summoner and Banshee wrote out of Arako on back in creation. Uh, I don't know. It probably doesn't matter. Uh, now, Bay, Bay, B. The name is B-E-I. I can't pronounce even one-syllable words. Uh, whatever their name is, they're cool with the concept here, and they're going to fight. Death and Famine then approach the White Sword about signing on, and it's a little bit contentious. Uh, he more or less makes them beg for his participation. Firestorm and Pestilence then chat up Iska the Unbeaten, who's all about it. Without a word, she just raises a glass to the pending battle. Finally, our Anubis-looking friend finds his sword, the black bone of Amdwat, and our uh, ten bad guy champions take their place on the action figure display. From here, we get, uh, well, a double-page spread of swords. It feels like we're preparing to have ourselves a grand old round of D&D here. Um, this is just an info page to learn about swords that we'll likely never, ever have to think about again after the story wraps up. Let's go through them anyway, though. War will wield the sword Vermilion. War's mutant power is described as fire. Which, yeah, stands to reason because their head is kind of engulfed in flame. Looks a lot like Firestorm. The creepy summoner wields Colony. His mutant power is invulnerability. He's also a high summoner, which, I mean, is kind of part of his name. Solemn wields Muramasa, which we saw in that uh, Wolverine two-parter. His mutant power is... Adamantium skin. Huh? Does that mean that Wolverine's mutant power is adamantium-laced bones? I don't think so. Weird. Okay. The White Sword of the Ivory Spire wields purity. His mutant power is healing, which I guess stands to reason, though I thought it would be called something like resurrection, uh, because he was, you know, he'd always bring those hundred warriors back every day, but I'm not going to split hairs here. Redroot the Forest wields alluvium. Her mutant power is Batomancy, which I think uh, means talking to plants, because she can talk to, uh, I don't know. Maybe it's control of plants. I, I really don't know. Death wields the black bone of Amdwat, and his mutant power is the Eyes of Death, which sounds like something that you might watch on Sven Gulli. Iska the Unbeaten wields Mercy. Uh, her Brotherhood of Dada power is that she can never lose. Bay the Blood Moon wields Seducer. And their mutant power is the Doom Note. Uh, is that, can she summon Shinigamis and, and write names in a notebook? I, I don't know. Pog-er-pog wields. Yeah, Pog-er-pog. Uh, he ain't a mutant. 
Just a beast, so no powers here. Finally, Annihilation wields the Midnight Blade. Everything else about them is redacted, but uh, don't you worry one bit, we will find out everything we need to know by the end of this very issue. And yeah, it's exactly what you think it's going to be. It's not really going to be a surprise. Back to comics, and our heroes arrive at the Starlight Citadel. They talk a bit about the game Saturn is playing with their lives, and the world, of course. Before they can get too deep into the discussion, however, the lady herself appears. She relieves them all to their chambers and invites them to a pre-battle feast afterwards. And we follow each of our champions into their rooms, where each will find a tarot card. So let's hop back into list mode and talk about them. Betsy, she arrives in her room to find the Nine of Swords. Now, this, the image on this card shows her being stabbed by nine swords. Doug gets the Two of Cups, and the image shows him and a, a long-haired person. Maybe Gorgon, each holding a cup, facing one another? I don't know. Speaking of Gorgon, he doesn't even bother looking at his card. He just tosses it aside like so much nonsense. Brian gets the Knight of Pentacles card, and it shows him riding a griffin, much like he did in Excalibur number 13. Magic's card is the Page of Wands, and it shows her basically doing what she does, stabbing the soul sword into the ground and stirring up magical energies. It's what we see Magic do in just about every issue Magic's in. Kid Cable gets the Fool, which he doesn't appear to appreciate. Uh, the card shows him sort of doing like that, that top-of-the-world pose from Titanic, which is another movie I've never seen, but I do know that scene. Uh, Wolverine gets strength. His card has him in a high summoner headlock. The creepy summoner is locked on a chokehold. Storm gets death, and she's shown riding a dark horse, leading what appears to be a red-eyed zombie army into battle. Apocalypse has? Well, we don't know just yet, because after looking at his card, he just crushes it in his hand. Don't you worry, though. We will find out soon. We shift scenes to join Saturnine, who's on the roof of the place, where she casts some sort of spell. Her fish-faced consort informs her that her next guest is here and waiting, and she is rather impatient. Huh, I wonder who this might be. As Opaluna is escorted, she passes by Apocalypse, who is none too pleased with the game at hand. They have a fairly contentious conversation. Morgan Le Fay comes up. Apocalypse's seemingly sudden interest in mysticism comes up as well. Saturnine then repairs Apocalypse's tarot card so we can finally see what it was. And it was the Lover's card, and it features Apocalypse and Genesis, his wife, in an embrace. Which takes us to our conclusion where Apocalypse is stood before Annihilation, who unmasks to reveal themselves as... Duh. Genesis. Of course it's Genesis. That's not the end of the issue, though. We do get an info page... Uh, all about those tarot cards, courtesy of the former Hellion Tarot. Regarding Betsy's Nine of Swords, uh, this is about paranoia and is described as being one of the very few bad cards in the deck. Doug's Two of Cups signifies harmony and is considered the true lover's card, so it probably wasn't Gorgon on it. Gorgon's card is described as being hidden. She can't see what Gorgon's card was because no matter how many times she flips it, all she sees is the back. Brian's Knight of Pentacles speaks to prosperity. Magic's Page of Wands uh, refers to someone who is clever, arrogant, but good to have around. Kid Cable's Fool is not exactly an insult. It just means that the bearer has much to learn and much that they will learn. 
Wolverine's strength regards the strength of will, heart, and focus, and speaks to Wolverine's endurance. Storm's death is not exactly as foreboding as you'd think. Uh, this one's about metamorphosis. And Apocalypse's Love is Caught is described as being a great test. And that is that. Next episode, we head back to the flagship already. It's X-Men number 14, followed by two issues of Marauders in a row. That's a little weird, but uh, how's about we talk about everything we learned here? Uh, we're halfway here. We're halfway through, right? We are halfway through this event, uh, and this is still such a weird and uneven story. Um, you know, before we get too deep here, uh, I've been known to complain a bunch about the info pages, right? I mean, you know it, I know it. I've commented that many of them are unnecessary, and that the information on them would be better delivered in the form of, you know, sequential art, like a comic book. Well... After reading this issue, I think I'd like to rescind that observation. Because this entire issue, this entire oversized issue, feels like an info page spread across an entire book. It's just lists upon lists. Uh, we meet some representatives of the fair and foul kingdoms of Otherworld. We meet the champions of Araco. We see the swords of Araco. We see the tarot cards of the heroes. The synopsis here felt more like a recitation of lists, uh, which is somehow even drier than my usual shtick, believe it or not. Now, something else I should address here is uh, the intrinsic Chris problems of X of Tens here. I have a very low tolerance for fantasy, for swords and sorcery, any of that sort of nonsense. And, and I don't mean for nonsense to be any sort of a slight. It's just that these are concepts, genres, settings that I can't bring myself to care about. Um, sometimes, even when partaking in a genre that I don't care for, say, you know, some sort of a you know sci sci-fi like a like a Star Wars or a Star Trek, or sword and sorcery fantasy, I can usually find myself like a lightning rod, right? Something that I can kind of grab onto and invest in. A lot of times, however, I can't. This, despite featuring the X-Men, a family of characters that I've loved for over three decades, I'm finding very little to hold on to. Um, I feel like we're getting buried in extraneous gobbledygook just to bloat out this story. Uh, I mean, let's let's like let's go into a list mode here. This whole this whole episode's been lists. We have all these swords. Like fifteen of them are new, right? At least fifteen of these swords are new. They all require info pages and bits of lore, and, and I have trouble buying that any of this will be important ever again after this story. We get ten new villains because all of our actual ex-villains are now good guys. And actually, it's more like twelve new villains because two of the new, old, original horsemen aren't even taking part in the Contest of Champions. And again, I really, really hate to hop here, but I doubt we're going to see many, if any, of these characters again after this. Though I, I, I'd guess that Pog or Pog might pop up down the line as a funny haha because he's a giant lizard alligator dinosaur beast and he talks funny and I think the internet probably digs that. I still don't care about Otherworld. Uh, the kingdoms here are more miss than hit. Uh, the only ones I'm somewhat interested in seeing are what uh, Jim Jaspers has to do and the Furies. And that's only because I love those old Alan Captain Britain stories so much. 
I, I couldn't imagine what a new reader would think about any of this. A brand new reader coming in wouldn't know Jim Jaspers from a hole in the wall and wouldn't have the f- foggiest idea what a fury is. I don't know. I don't know. Um, now, this other world setup and like this um, just dump of all these kingdoms here, it reminds me of how Hickman set up Secret Wars, right? We had all these battle worlds, and not all of which were particularly interesting. Uh, actually, most of them were not. Uh, and, and any that were, were mostly surface-level interesting at best. Like, I mean, I remember seeing, like, E is for Extinction. I was like, whoa, cool, there's an E is for Extinction-themed bit. But then what? Right? I mean, it's it's not real. <laughs> it's just... It's just set dressing. It all feels quite hollow. It did then, and it does now. I'm having a real hard time with this one, if it's not a, a completely apparent here. I'm hopeful that the second half of this will pick up, but uh, this felt way, way drawn out. Um, we didn't need 11 issues to get to where we are right now. We, cert- uh, we I don't think we needed half of that to get where we are right now. So this feels... Just so bloated, so much like we're we're just treading water here. Uh, we're buying time, and uh, oh boy, at least it looked really good. That'll give it. <laughs> it was a beautiful book here with Loraz and Azrar. Beautiful, beautiful work here. It's just a shame that uh, that the story is just kind of eh. But as ever, we will uh, remain. As optimistic as possible that this will improve. I've heard from people whose opinions I respect that this is a good story. So hopefully, hopefully we got all the busy work and all the filler out of the way in the first half here. And uh, the second half is loaded with with interesting things. Because this was uh, not much. <laughs> not so much. But uh, that's all I got to say about it. Because uh, at this point I'm just going to be repeating myself anyway. Uh, agree? Disagree? Please. Please feel free to let me know. I'd love to talk to you about it. Speaking of which, let's hop into the mailbag here. We got a moderately stacked deck here. Uh, we're going to start with Damien, who's talking about uh, a two-parter. He's talking about X-Force number 13 and Wolverine number 6, which I think were parts 3 and 4 of X of Tens. Damien opens with, Well, that two-parter was a steaming turd of a story. <laughs> I remember reading this and thinking I'd been mugged. I can't afford to spend 10 pounds on something I hate. Genuinely, I was going to give up reading the X-Books and definitely not buy any more of X of Tens. Fortunately, these two issues were released on the same day as Marauders, which I had already bought, so I got sucked back in by the best storm story of the Pox Pox Docs era. Thankfully, the later issues of Wolverine and X-Force are co-written by Jerry Duggan, which lifts them up. I admire your tenacity for sticking with this and finding something nice to say. Anyway, until I care at all about the hand, make mine X lapsed. Well, tell us how you really feel about that two-part story there, Damien. No, no, I I completely agree. Uh, definitely felt like, uh, especially coming after, uh, you know, a fairly strong, uh, a decently strong open, and then a very strong X-Factor number four. It was just like... It was like we were driving down the highway, and uh, and there was a speed bump on the highway, right? <laughs> and then we we almost bust our front axle going over the first one, and then there's a second speed bump just a few feet ahead of that one. And it's uh, it was X Force and Wolverine sending uh, our titular hero to hell to 
get a sword. It was uh, not a good story at all. To the point where I glossed over so much while reading it that I didn't even realize that Mariko is back among the living. I, I know I saw her name in there, and I just assumed it was a flashback, but I think it was in the present. I didn't know Mariko was back, and I was so out to lunch reading that story that I didn't even care. <laughs> I didn't even care to make the comment, but uh, I definitely appreciate uh, you sticking with this <laughs> and finding something to say about uh, these uh, somewhat forgettable issues. You felt like you were mugged. Yes, I, I can totally... Totally appreciate that sentiment, but thank you so much. Next, Jesse is talking about a topic I didn't think we'd ever be touching on again, uh, Empire. Also Deadpool. He says, I was catching up on some reading with Mr. Wade Wilson because of Deadpool's Dawn of X tie-in, and in Deadpool number 5, which is Legacy number 320 because there were like 30 <laughs> Deadpool number 5s, there's an ad for Empire that shows Xavier, Cyclops, and Storm with a Kree and Scroll warrior and Cyclops holding a Krakoan flower, holding it out as if it was a gift. This makes me wonder if the pandemic changed Marvel's plans for the X-Men's involvement in the event series. I know Thor was supposed to have a bigger presence and a miniseries to tie in, but it was all thrown aside. I wonder if the plant-like nature of Krakoa and the plant-like species attacking the Earth had bigger plans in the long run. This ad otherwise would have had nothing to do with any of the mutant involvement in the event. What are your thoughts? That is so funny that I got this message when I did because the day before I got this email, I bought Deadpool number five. I've been trying to track down the uh, the Kelly Thompson run, and uh, to this point, I only need issues one and four. And I tell you what, this is embarrassing as a fake-ass comics historian. I bought Deadpool number four um, just uh, just yesterday. I got home and I realized that I bought the wrong Deadpool number four. I bought Deadpool volume seven number four and not Deadpool volume eight number four. And I felt like such an idiot because it's like I I should know better. <laughs> I should definitely know better. But I just saw number four. It's like oh oh cool. I get to check this one off my list and. Uh, Got home and it's like, huh, Scotty Young wrote this? I didn't know he had anything to do with Deadpool anymore. And it's like, no, no, this one's from 2018. So I felt like a giant idiot. And uh, realized that I left a variant cover of the actual number four I wanted at the same comic shop. So I picked up the cover I thought was the real cover. And uh, I, it was just a mess. Just a mess. An embarrassing mess at that. But I'd also bought Deadpool number five, I think the day or two before that. And I was flipping through it, and I found this very same ad. And it is very, very weird. It, it's just as uh, Jesse explained it here. The, the focus is on Cyclops, like, kind of presenting a flower. And uh, it really, it made me wonder. It's like, oh, is there, is there a bigger X-Men presence here? Because I figured you guys would have told me if there was. Uh, those of you who have read the, you know, entire event uh, deal. And uh, no, it sounds like not. Sounds like that did not happen. So... I gotta assume, uh, with as awful as uh, the X-Men Empire tie-ins were, that they probably had something, I don't know if I want to say something better planned, but something else planned. Um, and, I mean, it's just, it almost writes itself, right? Uh, these are plant creatures, the X-Men are all about the plants right now. It's a story that basically writes itself, so it's it would I'd be very, very surprised if there wasn't something else in the, in the works before... Uh, 
before the world, you know, grinded to a halt. Jesse continues, Deadpool is so far okay, and I would say that issue six, where Wade is trying to get on Krakoa, is the highlight so far. I'm usually a huge fan of Chris Bocciolo, but he's starting to get extremely difficult to make out what is going on in his panels. Generation X number one will stay my most favorite comic of all time, though. And you know, it's funny, uh, Chris Bocciolo, uh, Chris, how do we say his name? I, I thought I put up a, uh, a pronunciation guide on, on Twitter a couple days ago. Bacolo? I don't know. Uh, he is uh, definitely in like my top three artists of comic artists of all time, and uh, I have to agree. I have to agree. I was so excited to see his name on a Deadpool comic, especially after reading number six and just loving it. I was like, oh, you know, the, what can make this better? Well, you put my favorite artist on there, and I. It, it is. It is a bit hard to follow. And uh, he does not draw quite as cute a Jeff the Landshark <laughs> as uh, whoever it was that wrote issue six. And uh, and whoever's writing the, I think it's uh, Sandoval is writing it now. Gerard, Gerardo Sandoval is like the main Deadpool artist. And he draws a really good uh, Jeff the Landshark as well. Including the most recent issue that has him uh, taken over by a symbiote as, as part of the King and Black uh, crossover. Which... Jeff the Landshark Venomized is, uh, that's, that's an issue worth buying. I would definitely tell you to, uh, run out and grab that one. It was Deadpool number 10, I believe. Uh, Jesse wraps up with, well, until Deadpool becomes King of Krakoa, make my next lapse, and, uh, stranger things have happened, haven't they? <laughs> it would not surprise me one bit. But thank you so much for jogging my memory on that Empire ad, and also, I'm just so happy that you're uh, you're checking out Deadpool after we uh, we dipped our toe in it here on the show. Uh, next up, Evan. He's going to be talking about X, X, not X Factor, Excalibur number thirteen. He says, "I definitely felt like I missed an issue here, and some of it could be because of Brian and Betsy's fake fighting, but it did get me thinking about some of the Krakoans' effort to tilt the contest outside the scope of the rules." Normally, I might frown on the good guys cheating, but they're playing a game whose rules were established by Saturnine, who is playing her own games. Betsy pointed out that Saturnine was confident that Brian would fall in line when she wrote the prophecy. We usually think of prophecies as ancient rules forged of destiny or something, but this one was written up by Cosmic Homewrecker trying to get her favorite Captain Britain back to the Citadel in order to Netflix and chill. Who cares about her rules, especially when the fate of the mutant nation and the world is at stake. Very, very good point. Very good point here. Um, I, I definitely agree with you, though. This one felt... It felt like we missed something here, and uh, a lot of that has to do with the uneven characterization of these characters in any given issue. So, we have Brian and Betsy fighting. They're fake fighting. They're fake argument here to, to kind of set Saturnine at ease. And it didn't read as... Uh, Particularly strange Or obviously You know, fake Obviously, you know, a fiction Because these characters I mean, characterization is What the writer needs it to be That's been the case for a little while now That's not a Dawn of X problem That's a Marvel That's that's just a comics problem That's That's not just even a Marvel problem That's just a comics industry problem These characters become what the writers need them to be in order to tell the story and screw anyone who came before them and anyone who comes after. Because whoever comes after is going to do the same thing anyway. They're going to make these characters fit the story that they want to tell, regardless of what happened before and what's going to happen after. And the cycle just repeats. So we have Betsy and Brian acting... uh, 
out of character here, but there's a pattern of behavior in these books where it's just like, okay, well, that's just how they act. So I just definitely felt like I missed something. Even on reread, I tried reading it again with an eye toward knowing the outcome here, and still, it just felt like a just felt like another issue. Didn't feel like anybody was faking anything. But uh, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on Excalibur number thirteen. Here, a very, very weird one. A very weird one indeed. Uh, we're gonna wrap up with a letter from Jason, who's given us a little bit of a Exoswords uh, catch up with a focus on. His favorite issue of the run so far, New Mutants number 13. He says, I'm just popping in now that we're insert fraction here of the way through the X of Tens to share a few thoughts in general and to gently but firmly chastise you for underappreciating what I think is the finest issue of the entire event. First, the big picture and how I don't understand it. I'm more than a little shaky on the exact relationship between Krakoa, Arako, Akor, Ak- Akara, Amenth, Dryador, and Otherworld. Yes, <laughs> I agree. <laughs> no, it seemed. I was saying this earlier during the synopsis here. We have these these disparate bits of island, and when we got the info dump in X Men number twelve, and we learned that there was something called Amenth, I had no friggin'. I still don't know what Amenth is. It's just like another land through a rift, but it's the same rift that Arako was sent through and sealed in in the chasm after Apocalypse and the Four Horsemen sent him there, but then the Four Horsemen were there, but not there. It's very, very bizarre here. Um, If I were to try and parse this out, I'd say that, you know, Otherworld, we have uh, the Citadel, then we have, like, Dryador as one of the side kingdoms here. Somehow, going through Dryador gets you to Arako, and Arako, I'm sorry, yeah, Arako, no, yeah, Arako, which is somehow also connected to Amenth. I don't know if it's physically connected to Amenth, or if that's just where, like, a rift point is, but we do know from Hellions that um, Sinister's crew is working their way through Dryador to get to Arako to steal those weapons. I don't know. I don't know. It's, uh... It's a lot of stuff. It's a lot of stuff. Uh, Jason continues. Maybe I don't have a head for maps, but this is just too many places. Amen. It seems that after the ancient islands break up, then some bad stuff happened to the mutants of Arako. And now what's left of them are all PO'd at Great Grandpappy Apocalypse. But I don't know what it is they want. What are they trying to accomplish? Why do they need to go through Saturnine? Is it just a geography thing? Like how you can't drive from the Northeast United States to Florida without paying extortionate tolls to get through Delaware? There are at least one too many sudden but inevitable betrayals in Arako's backstory, and I'm unable to keep it all straight. You're right. You're absolutely right here. I thought, like I said just a few moments ago, um, in X-Men number 12, when Amenth was added to this puzzle, it's just like, why? I'd have been fine if, you know, Arako was just, uh, the void was there, and that's where these creatures came from. I mean, I don't know. There are, there's too much going on. There's too much going on, and not not any of it really is, is all that interesting. And it certainly won't be interesting once we're out of this story. It's, I don't know. Jason continues. Next, I'm not sure how I feel about how stakes have been reintroduced. 
If, as we've discussed, one of the primary foundational characteristics of the Hickman era is that death isn't a thing anymore, it feels unsatisfying when the only way they can think to make an event matter is to say, gosh, actually death is a thing again now, at least until the issue stopped having the X of Ten's trade dress on them. I understand why this choice was made, I just wish they'd come up with a cleverer gimmick. I'd reserve the right to revise my opinion on this if new versions of Died in Otherworld characters like Rockslide 2.0 turn out to be wicked cool. <laughs> and yeah, once again, I mean, I do appreciate the fact that we do have stakes here. Uh, because it's, it is one way to make it sound like this event matters. Because they're not doing much else to make it sound like the event matters, right? And, and actually, your next point is going to talk a little bit more about that. So I won't say anything about that just yet. But I was happy with that because I want these things to matter. I really, really want these things to matter. But I can't deny that you're 100% right. Um, we have the Dawn of X books. I mean, we're in episode 121. I think we started X at 10s at 111. So that was 110 minus 12, 98, about 100 issues of this run, right? Where death didn't matter. We were told and beaten over the head with the fact that death no longer matters. And here we are butting up against a story that we need to make people think is somehow more important than the hundred issues we read between Hoxpox and this. So we go back to the well of making it so death matters again. You're 100% right. It does feel like a kind of a cheap way to implement stakes here. And it is less clever than I think we would expect from, uh, from these creators. I think that uh, the way they did it, I feel, is clever because it kind of subverts our expectations. But if we if we strip it down to its you know to its bare parts here, it is just like okay, well now death matters, <laughs> so deal with it, and it won't again after uh, like you said after the trade dress is gone, it'll we'll go back to the way things were. Uh, Jason continues. Also, it feels unnecessary to make the stakes worldwide. It would be more than enough to say that the Krakoans are fighting for their own existence. After all, these are characters that we care about. To throw in that, oh, by the way, if the Krakoans lose, then the Araconians will overrun the entire Earth. It's just overkill. Someone needs to tell Marvel that it's okay not to put the fate of the planet at stake half a dozen times every month. Readers can still care about smaller things. Written well, an event focused on saving the life of a single person could be more suspenseful than any number of alien invasion fleets. Yes, you're absolutely right here. And uh, to their, uh, I don't want to say to their credit, but I do feel like the stakes of the world have been downplayed a little bit. I, I mean, they're there. They're 100% there. We know that if the X-Men lose... Um, the, the Araconians, Iraqis, they're going to destroy the Earth. Uh, Saturnine was like, yeah, <laughs> they can do what they want. But I do feel like they've downplayed it a little bit. Uh, I think maybe that was a concession because Marvel wanted the event to be bigger. Because as you said here, Marvel didn't, didn't seem to get the memo that uh, not every event needs to shatter the world and crack the internet and make it so everything we thought we knew was wrong and... Uh, all that we know is no longer there. It, I don't think Marvel got that memo. So maybe this was supposed to be a little smaller in scope and scale. Again, I'm projecting and guessing wildly. But uh, 
I'd like to think so, especially with how, as I mentioned, it, it, it is kind of downplayed that the world will end here. It, it gets a mention every now and again, but it's more about fighting for themselves, I feel. Though, maybe I'm missing on some, some subtext that, 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 uh, <laughs> that happens to me from time to time. Sometimes more often than not, especially when I'm kind of glossed over. Uh, Jason continues, On that note, on to my favorite issue, New Mutants Lucky Number 13. My perspective on this story reflects my relative newness to the X-Universe. My first meeting with Doug was when Professor X brought him to Krakoa to be his Mutant to Island translator, and I only met Magic when she became one of the great captains of Krakoa. So while more experienced readers may see, may see some of the issue as out of character or old hat, well, like NBC used to advertise reruns in the summer times, I didn't see it, so it's new to me. You compared the treatment of Doug to the many, many times DC tries to convince us that Aquaman isn't lame, and how, if they have to keep telling us, it just makes it that much harder to believe them. I don't see that as what's going on here. We're very specifically not being told that Doug is now a mighty warrior. He's not being set up to single-handedly slaughter all the X-Men's enemies. He's a kid entirely out of his element, like a tech support guy who suddenly finds himself drafted into the Special Forces. He's cannon fodder. We see him struggle with the weight of this responsibility, but finally decide to do what he's called to do because he's the one who was called, and it's his responsibility. I think that's pretty noble, and it makes me think more of a character whom I'd mostly previously seen as just a plot, as mostly just a plot device. There is a lot of truth to what you say, my friend. There is a lot of truth to it, and uh, this may be one of those times where all of my continuity baggage really uh, hinders my ability to appreciate a... I don't want to say a simple story, but a story, a nice story. I, I, we get this a lot out of Doug here. If you go back and you read the old New Mutant stuff, um, we see Doug in these sort of situations where he is out of his element and is called to action, and we always find out that he's, that he's underestimated. And, and it just seems to be a, a trope with Doug Ramsey here. I could totally appreciate seeing this with, you know, fresher eyes and less continuity baggage and getting something more out of it, for sure. Because he's never treated, never quite treated like he's on par with any, you know, he's not on par with magic. He's not on par with any any of his peers, really. He is, like you said, he is the tech support guy. <laughs> he is the guy who can translate. But we do get this more than meets the eye sort of uh, take on him. It seems it's like kind of like his only story, you know, because uh, honestly, he's he's got to be one of the harder characters to write because you either have to be extremely clever, extremely loose with the concept of language, or you go with this. You make it so it's like, okay, well, don't underestimate this guy. He's he's the funny haha guy, but he's there's more to him than that, and uh, that's that's why I compare him to Aquaman because it's just. That's all we get. And and the way you put it is perfect here. The more they try to convince us, the harder it's going to be to do so. It's kind of like when you when you have to work for somebody who won't stop reminding you that they're there that they're your boss. You know, it's like if you have to tell people you're the boss all the time, well maybe you're not. <laughs> um uh, Jason continues, Likewise, I don't see magic as cold or unfeeling. I see her doing her best to prepare a friend for an impossible task. This is her responsibility, and she's going to do the best she can. And she's not going to lie, either to Doug or to herself, about the likely outcome of all this. That's pretty noble, too, and tragic. 
and these new insights into the characters of Doug and Ileana are why I love this issue. Too many of the other pieces of, the, of this event have felt like chess pieces being shoved around a board or like excerpts of a knockoff AD&D handbook. But this issue was about real three-dimensional characters doing their best in an impossible situation, and that I think we can all relate to. Once again, uh, there's a lot of truth to what you say. And once again, this is another situation where my continuity baggage gets in my way of enjoying a story, because magic... I mean, Magic has been shown as a warmer character uh, Time and again here um, More uh, sympathetic Not just this sort of drill sergeant And I, I do realize she's in a new role now as a, as a captain of Krakoa And that might be informing some of her behavior But uh, it still just doesn't feel Doesn't feel right to me It doesn't feel like uh, the Ilyana that I've known uh, For a very long time here it looks like Ileana, and and it it fights like Ileana, but it just doesn't it just doesn't strike me the same way here. But I totally, again, I do appreciate uh, your being able to see this with fresher eyes than I, and uh, definitely getting something more out of it. Also, I'm very very happy to see your uh, Dungeons and Dragons uh, a reference here because uh, I didn't know if I was being out of line by comparing a lot of this stuff to like a D and D uh, rule book here, because so much of it just feels like. Like we're gonna be getting out like little miniatures and dice and and playing these uh, these extra swords fights here, and I think didn't I think we rolled dice once before, didn't we? In an issue of New Mutants, I think we we did play <laughs> a New Mutants role playing game. So uh, you never know, you never know. Uh, Jason continues. One more bit from this issue. There's a panel that directly on the nose foreshadows one of the major outcomings of all of X of Tens. And I only noticed this on this read-through because I'm aware of what's going to happen. Any hints at all would be spoiling things for first-time readers, but I've taken a screenshot, so I'll forward it to you after the thing that's going to happen happens. So you have that to look forward to. I do look forward to that. I always love callbacks and call-aheads, and uh, I, I look forward to seeing that for sure. Jason continues. Finally, I have a brief Hellions theory. Do you remember how, back in Hellions number one, we saw the gathering of the Fellowship? And in several cases, the circumstances of the eventual New Hellion situation seem more than a bit sketchy. For instance, Havoc oddly blacking out and losing control during a fight, Wildchild being described as going feral right after moving to Krakoa, and Grey Crow being set upon by Morlocks only to have the Council falsely accuse him of, accuse him of being the aggressor. I, ex I suspect that someone pulled shenanigans here in order to manipulate the Council into forming the Hellions team to begin with. I don't know for sure who perpetrated these shenanigans, but my guess is cleverly hidden in the following anagram. Sister Minister. Huh. I'm gonna have to get out a pen and paper to try to uh, break that code. Huh. That is a great theory. I actually really, really like that theory because it certainly stands to reason here. Um, Sinister, he is sort of a... Uh, Sort of a puppet master, he always has been, and we really haven't seen him doing much of that, at least in the forefront. We do know that he has a, you know, a black market clone lab under under the bar, but uh, I could certainly see him manipulating situations and characters to where he can kind of put his thumb on them and use them to do his bidding here. The, I mean, the first time out, they went to the, uh, the, found, the House for Foundlings, right? Which is... An old sinister stomping ground. So I definitely think you are probably onto something there. And Zeb Wells is one of the 
handful of writers uh, that are on these books that uh, I have all the faith in the world in. So I'd love to see this come to fruition and see how it all plays out. Uh, Jason wraps up with, So until it stops being funny that Marvel Comics once published a book called Giant Size Man-Thing, make my neck lapsed. And uh, I, I, I actually own a few copies of Giant Size Man-Thing that I'll never read. I simply own it because the cover says Giant Size Man-Thing. And, uh, but thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on, uh, on X of Ten so far, your favorite issue of X of Tens, and uh, giving us that theory. It's, great. it's always great to hear from you, Jason. I really, really appreciate getting the point of view from someone with far less baggage than a lot of us on this uh, X-Labs journey here. So thank you so much, and I look forward to more. Uh, now, that'll do it for our mailbag. Uh, if anybody would like to join in the conversation, please, please feel free to do so. You could find me a couple different ways. On uh, Twitter, I'm at Ace Comics, and you can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You could uh, find, uh, uh, boy, what is it? Blog posts and show notes. That's the words I say. Blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. Also, xlabs.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can join in the conversation on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men. And you can listen to a whole bunch of audio at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Well, that'll do it for our oversized issue, our oversized midpoint issue of uh, Exitens here. Uh, fingers crossed that uh, business picks up as we continue through the second half. Uh, I would like to thank you all so much for sharing your time with me today and joining me on this uh this twisted and pointy journey through Otherworld. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you all again real soon. See ya.